Hello, everybody. Thank you for tuning in to today's call-in session. Now, this is going to be uh, informal as always, so uh, over the course of my little introductory remarks here, if you feel you have something to add or something to quibble with me about, uh, just raise that old hand and uh, we'll get into a back and forth. But uh, insofar as the introductory comments, just wanted to give some kind of impressionistic thoughts on this Aaron Rodgers backlash and uh, what it portends kind of in a wider political or societal sense, because I'm not a huge NFL buff. Um, I don't really care about it from the standpoint of his playing accomplishments or whether he won or lost the uh, game last night, although I did happen to tune into uh, the last bit of it and saw the sort of wild ending with the, the 49ers. But what the thing that really struck me was that, you know, if you glance at social media after the game last night, and again, I don't want to exaggerate the importance of people making rude comments in response to an athlete winning or losing a game. Uh, but I, you, you look at social media last night, namely Twitter, and it's flooded, unbelievably, with pundits and journalists and media personalities of all kinds heaping the most vicious scorn on Aaron Rodgers, not from the kind of friendly, uh, kind of low-level standpoint of this athlete I don't like or this team I like don't like lost the game and I'm, I'm in a feud with this team because I support my team and they're the opposing team or, you know, some kind of an ordinary back and forth to and fro uh, it, with regard to sports. It's because they have all this built, pent up kind of cultural slash political resentment toward Aaron Rodgers for no reason other than that he got kind of unwittingly involved in this vaccine imbroglio earlier this season. So, like, what is the reason that they actually despise Aaron Rodgers so fervently at this point? And when I say they, I mean, of course, I'm generalizing, but you had, I saw people from, like, ESPN, from just the standard run-of-the-mill kind of political media outlets uh, to just your various kind of assortments of different social media influencer commentary types who were just absolutely vicious in the ridicule for Aaron Rodgers. Again, not because he performed badly or he lost a game or whatever, but because they had imbued him with all this kind of wider cultural significance for his uh, behavior vis-a-vis declining to get vaccinated. And just to review, if you hadn't followed it that closely, because I didn't really, because like, why would I care in a vacuum about whether Aaron Rodgers gets vaccinated? How does that affect me? I mean, do you actually think that Aaron Rodgers not getting vaccinated is going to put others in harm's way or is such a menace that he needs to be constantly berated until he succumbs to the pressure to get vaccinated? It doesn't even make sense. But if just just to review for your own knowledge, in case you hadn't been plugged into this subject, basically Aaron Rodgers at a press conference during the preseason of the NFL said that he had been immunized against COVID, and he used the word immunized 
intentionally because he had not been vaccinated, but he had undergone various homeopathic treatments that he claimed was going to protect him from any effects of contracting the disease. Now, was that an attempt to kind of sidestep the direct question of whether he had personally received the requisite injections? Yeah, probably, but okay, fine. I mean, one of the things that you'll actually discover if you look into this issue a bit further is that Aaron Rodgers is subject to some of the most stringent COVID-related protocols on earth, vaccinated or unvaccinated. I mean, as an unvaccinated player, Aaron Rodgers had to get tested for COVID every single day in the morning. And he had could not interact with his teammates in the standard ways. He had to face a whole battery of different restrictions regarding travel and this and that. So this idea that Aaron Rodgers himself was a huge threat to the public safety, or to really anybody, makes no sense. So if that is where the anger regarding his non-vaccinated status came from, it was an unfounded anger. And, you know, if you look at how Rodgers justifies his decision to not get vaccinated, some of it is maybe a little bit dubious where he's invoking concepts around like woke culture as though being woke and being vaccinated are somehow synonymous. Um, That said, there is maybe some overlap between whatever he's referring to vaguely there as woke culture and this kind of vindictive crusade to demonize him for not getting the obligatory uh, injections. But, you know, maybe some of that framing could be quibbled with. But this idea that it should engender such an outsized fury uh, seems ridiculous. And uh, yet, you know, people had a lot of fun last night and into today kind of somehow, you know, jokingly attributing his loss or maybe even not jokingly attributing his loss uh, in the playoff game last night to his refusal to get vaccinated. They'll say now he has more time to do his own research, et cetera, et cetera, which, okay, fine. They're jokes ultimately about a outcome in a sports contest, but they do seem to reflect this kind of underlying, again, sense of uh, vindictiveness that a lot of people with positions of influence in the media, in the commentariat, on, I guess, social media writ large, are, are operating within that if they had the power to do so, they clearly would enact in terms of wider public policy. And to the extent they are, they do have those powers, they are doing it. And I don't want to, again, muddy the definitions too much by constantly referring to a, an amorphous they. But people who think that all measures within one's powers should be deployed to kind of encourage or coerce vaccination. They're, they're these, that's the type of people now who are making these <laughs> kind of overheated uh, ridicules of, of Aaron Rodgers. Um, and if, for example, the United States governmental system, the national govern, government, was operating under the same constraints as the Australian government, where they just expelled or deported, as you probably know, Novak Djokovic, the number one tennis player in the entire world, who was gearing up to uh, play in the Australian Open, and if he had won, which was very likely, he would have then been the most victorious tennis player of all time in terms of number of Grand Slams won. 
if the same kind of you know uh, co- governmental system existed in the U.S. and some of these people who are the most zealous about enforcing these various protocols were able to make unilateral decisions uh, in the same way that 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 uh, led to the deportation of, of Djokovic, I, I think that very clearly people like Rogers would be punished and stymied even more than they already have been. And to be clear, I mean, people think of the NFL as like a, I don't know, inherently conservative institution, which in a way it probably is because they're trying to protect their profit margins most of all. I mean, whether that's actually synonymous with a conservative instinct that I think is a broader philosophical uh, debate, but the let's let's just say that the NFL is not known as a bastion of like progressive activism for, by and large, at least in terms of its kind of institutional structures or the the uh, the ownership level or the administrative level, uh, and yet to not get vaccinated as Rogers did not. Um, subjected him to a whole host of extremely onerous impositions. Uh, like, as I said before, not being required to get tested every single day to, you know, most, you know, uh, precisely ascertain his viral status. Um, and then gets him kind of uh, totally run, put through the ringer in terms of the the public response, uh, the public ridicule, the media criticism of his his conduct, um, so I guess for you know, the the broader societal thing that I want to probably extrapolate from this, what in a in, on its own terms would just be a minor event or a totally unremarkable event, meaning a an athlete fails to deliver in the in, a, in the big game, and you know there are various kind of criticisms of him floating around in the ether and he gets subject to jokes and ridicule. Okay, whatever. That's not really significant at all. What's significant at all is kind of like the sentiment underlying the ridicule now and how that could be transmuted into different mechanisms of state and corporate or bureaucratic control and coercion and and, and punishment. Um, Clearly that is still happening where that power does exist. Um, maybe it's waning to some extent in certain institutions because, you know, Omicron is not the uh, gigantic threat that some had initially hyped it to be. But you know, one of my, the themes that I've been commenting on and reporting on is just the, the inertia that exists within these, these institutions, which has kind of uh, these interests. If these institutions have organized themselves around COVID being this existential threat, and needing to pull out all the stops to, to mitigate it, um, regardless of considerations like, you know, personal choice, individual freedom, et cetera. Um, you know, that's going to go on just by, by force of inertia at a lot of these institutions. And if the people running the institutions <laughs> exhibit the same kind of vindictive traits that were on display at the, uh, in the ridicule and the, the, sc- the absolute scorn directed at Rogers then that doesn't really bode well uh, in all other, uh, all manner of other aspects of uh, society. Um, so that's the just the, the brief Rogers uh, interlude that I wanted to discuss. And if anybody else has comments on that, uh, we'll get into it. But then, but on top of that, uh, I know a sort of an unrelated subject, and it's funny because I keep vacillating back and forth between <laughs> different kind of COVID issues and uh, Russia slash Ukraine in terms of the conflict that's brewing. But 
I, I guess if I were to stretch, I could maybe postulate some kind of uh, synchronicity between those two subjects, but I'm, I'm just, I'm just not going to bother. I'm going to make a really uh, hard segue. And just comment on something that I've been... I've had in my craw on this subject, let's say, uh, for the past maybe two weeks, which is the tenor of U.S. media discussion of it, especially when it comes to the questions that are posed by journalists with access to people in positions of decision-making authority. So whether it's executive branch officials in the Biden administration or senators, congressmen, et cetera, what you'll notice is that despite the massive changes in the media kind of ecosystem over the past several years, of which there definitely have been many, one thing that seems to always remain the same, one thing that is unchanging in the context of these vast changes is that when it comes to the outlets that people like the Secretary of State choose to appear on, when it comes to the types of journalists who, for example, get direct access to the White House pool, right, where they're able to shout questions at, for example, Biden um, when he's coming to and fro to different events. They, that kind of sector of the media landscape has been unchanged insofar as the interventionists slash pro-war slash pro-belligerent uh, sentiments that they uh, those assumptions that they operate with it if you'll notice whenever these journalists have an opportunity to pose a question let's say on the ukraine russia situation and whether a war could be forthcoming when it, they have a question of a chance to pose a question on that subject to i don't know the secretary of state anthony blinken almost invariably the underlying uh, presuppositions of why the U.S. should be such an active participant or um, combatant, let's say, in such a conflict, th those presuppositions are never questioned. Instead, what they'll do is they'll put on this kind of um, appearance of being adversarial and serious and probing, and those quote-unquote adversarial questions will all be tailored toward eliciting or extracting some commitment of increased belligerent activity on the part of the U.S. vis-a-vis -vis Russia slash Ukraine. It won't be about, okay, so why is the U.S. even in a position in the first place where it could be contemplating, like, for example, funding or arming or actively uh, facilitating an, an insurgency in Ukraine against Russia? Like, why is, why is that the U.S. role to begin with? That... It's never questioned. What's questioned is why aren't American elected officials doing enough to assert the American kind of interventionist position in Ukraine? So just to give you an example from today, I mean, this is today, this is the chosen media outlet of the Secretary of State who could go basically anywhere he wants to give the latest updates on the Ukraine situation from the standpoint of U.S. policy. But this, these are the questions that Margaret Brennan, the host of Face of the Nation on CBS, asked to Anthony Blinken, the Secretary of State, this morning. Quote, are they just using you to buy time or to build a predicate for invasion? That's 
Margaret Brennan talking about Russia, asking if they're just using Blinken to buy time and create a predicate for invasion. You've made this offer of reciprocal military exercises. What's left to talk about? So that's Margaret Brennan expressing her impatience that the U.S., at least ostensibly, if you listen to Blinken, wants to continue to pursue uh, diplomatic engagement and avert any kind of outright military conflict. More from Brennan. If you are focused on deterrence, why not do what Ukraine is asking you to do and sanction now? Take action now. Why keep it as a punitive matter after the fact? There again, it was Brennan, Margaret Brennan, host of CBS Face the Nation, one of the you know key morning shows that, for better or worse, mostly worse, still sets a lot of the agenda in terms of Washington dialogue. That's her asking a question that has baked into it the assumption that, quote-unquote, taking action now is like the optimal policy solution, and the only problem is that Blinken is not willing to take the action that Brennan is mentioning. Brennan continues with another question. Right, and Ukraine is saying you should go harder. You should go stronger. You, should, you could be stronger. Like there's, there, again, it's all from the standpoint of urging or egging on or even you know, berating the public officials in question to acquiesce to the demand to be more proactive in its inter- interventionist activity in a very volatile conflict. And you know, this was something that you also saw a few days ago when the um, White House reporter for Fox News, whose name is her name is Jackie Heinrich got into a situation where she was able to shout a question at Biden, and the question was the following. Why are you waiting on Putin to make the first move, sir? That was the question posed by the Fox News White House correspondent to to Biden, and Biden was caught on a hot mic saying that was a stupid question. Now, you you have this little meta-narrative that flared up briefly where people were saying, oh, meaning mostly conservatives or or, or, pro-Republican partisans were saying, Oh, the media was so angry or so uh, up in arms when Trump in the previous administration would you know, insult the intelligence or uh, insult the question-making abilities of journalists. And now here's Biden doing the same thing. And oh, isn't that a major contradiction? Well, maybe it is a contradiction on that very superficial level. But on the more important level, which is whether it was in fact a stupid question, I mean, Biden is correct. Just as Trump was happened to be correct about a lot of the extremely stupid questions that he was flooded with over the course of the previous four years, which also had baked within them a lot of these completely ridiculous interventionist assumptions, um, particularly as it related to Russia. Um, so, yeah, it is a stupid question because the, the stupidity is never even occurring. It never even occurring to these journalists to challenge any of the baseline assumptions about the U.S. role in a conflict like this. Why should the U.S. be such an active participant in a war that could potentially, if it were to spiral out of control, become a direct military confrontation between two nuclear-armed powers? I mean, isn't that kind of a very dangerous possibility? Um, What role does the U.S. have in... uh, kind of arbitrating these disputes about territorial integrity, quote-unquote, in Eastern Europe. Like, what? Like, start from first principles and engage with the presuppositions that are operative here. 
None of that is ever done. It's always about these kind of cheap shots to kind of egg on further aggressive interventionist action. And that's what is the stupid part. Um, and, you know, so I guess just to wrap up, you know, for all the, the massive changes in uh, U.S. media over the past just even four or five years, ten years, uh, where social media obviously now plays much more of a role front and center and kind of dictating the wider agenda and differences with the kind of uh, incentive structure in terms of pay and the financial sustainability of different outlets and on and on and on, like how the objectivity doctrine was largely discarded uh, sometime around 2016. You could get into a whole spiel about the, the genuine differences that have arose in how kind of U.S. media kind of collectively functions. But what has not changed, importantly, tellingly, crucially, in U.S. media, seemingly, is that in the very narrow sector of that media, where politicians, um, executive branch officials, etc., will go to give the latest talking points on a foreign conflict that the U.S. has intervened in to some degree, um, What's not changed is that the underlying premises kind of baked into that whole back and forth between journalists and politicians are overwhelmingly pro-intervention, hawkish, belligerent, however, whichever way you want to put it. It's not as though any of the kind of broader changes in the U.S. media landscape have resulted in a recalibration and how questions of that kind are posed and, and answered. Um, and even today, just to one, give one example, I mean, I saw a, an interview uh, that Joni Ernst sat for on ABC this week, which is the ABC morning show. And she's accusing Biden of perpetuating a, quote, doctrine of appeasement. And that, you know, if Biden is, isn't doing what the media is urging him to do and uh, get more active or do more actions. I mean, it's never quite spelled out what actions are wanted. I actually put, uh, sent a few questionnaires myself to some Republican senators this week, asking them to be more specific about what actions they're saying that the Biden is dere- Biden administration is derelict and not doing. I uh, haven't really gotten much in the way of a f- fulsome response yet, but I'll be following up on that this week. Um, but anyway, you know, Ernst caps off her uh, diatribe by saying that, you know, we can't appease Russia in this situation because they're trying to bring back the old Soviet Union and spread communism and socialism around the world. And that's why this matters to, like, the average Iowan. And then Martha Raddatz, the the host of this morning show, you know, filling in for George Stephanopoulos, Martha Raddatz, who also moderates, you know, presidential and vice presidential debates and is seen as the cream of the crop in the... Uh, kind of elite section of the journalism industry, which I'm saying hasn't really changed much over these past number of years. She just doesn't have a response. She just just lets that statement stand as though it's just straightforwardly the case that uh, Russia is seeking to spread socialism and communism, and that's why the average American should be deeply emotionally invested in the territorial integrity of Ukraine. I don't know. I think if you're a journalist and you're not just like a TV celebrity who allows yourself to be used as a kind of vehicle for the propagation of the latest talking points, maybe that should kind of 
flip a switch in your brain that there are some premises that need to be questioned. But that's just not what happens in these kind of elite venues, uh, particularly in terms of foreign policy. So, again, for all that's changed in the media landscape, this kind of ridiculous uh, ingratiation and this ridiculous kind of perpetuation of very stale orthodoxies, that, that remains consistent. And uh, so we're going to go to some callers. Thank you, Ali. And Ali, you are able to speak. Got to unmute. All right, go ahead. Sorry. Oh, hey, sorry. Can you hear me? Yep. On that topic, do you think that because I feel like it's both parties wanting to inch us closer to that, is that because we're out of Afghanistan and we don't really have that we need to get the military industrial complex some money to spend like for to usher money to them I just don't understand I, I really don't believe both party both parties really care about Ukraine but we keep hearing Ukraine the last few years the impeachment I I just don't know if this is a way to get their donors and the military industrial complex some more money but I, I just I don't feel that fear that Russia, like you just said, is, you know, going to turn the United States or the world into communism. But I don't understand this, you know, deep interest in Ukraine. Obviously, I don't think anybody wants people to die or a war, but I'm just not understanding how both parties are kind of now backing some action by the United States. Well, I mean, it is very peculiar, right? Because as you noted, there was a whole impeachment saga in 2019 that centered around Ukraine and actually centered around the shipments of weaponry to Ukraine that Trump was being condemned for temporarily freezing, right? Trump actually didn't cease those shipments, which were authorized by Congress, but uh, he temporarily froze them. And the idea was that he was using that as a point of leverage to extract a commitment from Ukrainian authorities to investigate Joe Biden. So without relitigating all that, it is odd, right, that this country that for most people is completely obscure, I mean, no offense to Ukrainians, right, and a lot of good people there, but just has very little impact on the day-to-day lives of most people. It is odd that it keeps popping up in this fashion. So, yeah, I mean, I think there are always vested financial interests at play um, on any foreign policy issue in which the, the U.S. is provisioning weaponry or making expenditures. And it's not as though every politician necessarily has it conscious in their minds. right? I don't think Joni Ernst necessarily is thinking to herself when she's making the ridiculous statement about the spread of global communism uh, that, oh, you know, this is just a ploy for me to enrich American weapons manufacturers or to shore up the kind of defense industrial base because they've lost some income as it relates to Afghanistan. Um, but that's the kind of environment that they swim in, right? Where, where if you do take a policy action that results in defense contractors being able to pump more um, weaponry into a foreign country, that obviously lifts their bottom line and that allows them to get more Lobbyists that can push for more measures like this, and the cycle continues, right? So, it's 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 almost about the the uh, atmosphere in which they exist more so than a conscious motive to enrich their patrons or something. And I think that's a distinction worth 
parsing out because if you just say, or if you just make like kind of the the brash accusation, right, that any one politician is not motivated by a genuine conviction as it relates to Ukraine, no matter how obscure the country seems to be, you know, how, how odd their fascination in it appears to be. If you accuse them of saying uh, of not being genuinely motivated by what they say they motiv- they're motivated by, I think sometimes that can maybe occlude the real uh, factors at play here, which is that, okay, maybe the uh, investments in Ukraine uh, vis-a-vis the American uh, defense industrial base have created a, a, a system of structures like think tanks and uh, lobbyists and kind of uh, diplomatic entities and so on where um, the continuous, this continuous spigot of funds is uh, kind of ever-present. And then you know, you, uh, a rationale is concocted to justify the, that spigot of funds, right? Um, and that the rationale that comes from, out, like from the think tanks it's, and, and so forth, um, maybe that is so kind of uh, ubiquitous that politicians do end up believing it on some level, meaning they believe that the territorial integrity of Ukraine is like this existential flashpoint for all of civilization and the U.S. must be forthrightly involved, with, even if it means deployment of, you know, combat forces, potentially. Um, yeah, I just so, find the whole yeah. thing kind of bizarre because it just seems Ukraine has been popping up a lot and then just this constant barrage of Russia, Russia, Russia is... I mean, if you look at their economy, and I know this gets talked about all the time, it's like, why? I don't understand how Russia is more threatening than maybe China or other countries that have way more economic, political kind of threats to us. I, I just don't, I don't feel that uh, yeah, yeah, well, constant well, well, fear of Russia, I guess. Well, like... And I'll the hang way- out, but enlist. Okay, thanks. Uh, yeah, I mean, well, the way that, that U.S. senators... For example, over the past uh, week or two, have been kind of constructing their rationalization for why the U.S. must be such an active um, participant in uh, any forthcoming Russia-Ukraine conflict. Is that they're they're saying that if the U.S. is weak or capitulates or appeases, that means Taiwan Taiwan could be invaded by China within the next year or something. Like I mean, they they always assert these sprawling kind of international. Uh, Logics as to how other states will take action as a result of something that the U.S. does or does not do, which of course is almost always spurious um, reasoning. Um, but but they're they're able to kind of connect disparate events in their own kind of formulations there and say that okay, even if you don't care about Ukraine, Republicans, or even if like you're you're still resentful that. Russia was used as such a political cudgel against Trump, and therefore maybe you're more skeptical of U.S. involvement now in that area of the world. Look, you got to realize that this is now going to embolden China, which maybe you're more politically antagonistic toward now, and you got to put aside your reservations and get on board. So they, they use rationalizations like that, and what, what is the end result? Well, I mean, the end result is that a lot of these, as you mentioned, weapons contractors and defense industry kind of operators, they end up with uh, flushed with with money. <laughs> and again, is that the most direct causal explanation for any 
one of these uh, positions? No, not necessarily, but it is always kind of in the ether and must be accounted for, I think. All right, next caller, Wynn, go ahead. Can you hear me, Michael? Yeah. Uh, awesome. Thanks for doing this. Um, so sorry, not to go back to the Rogers thing, but I think no, an, please, interesting go ahead. Wrinkle, an interesting wrinkle on that, and maybe you can find the link for me between the two. But um, so every week he has a 30 minute segment with Pat McAfee, who is this sort of like Joe Rogan similar ish. Yeah, I actually just I actually just uh, re I watched his um, appearance when he first had to go into COVID protocol after he tested positive on that show, just to refresh my memory as to what his side of the story was. So yeah, I'm familiar with that. I mean, <laughs> that, I guy's, that, that guy, that, am, am I crazy or is that guy a little bit, I don't know. I haven't seen enough to really make a determination, but the, the host's uh, mannerisms seem to me a little bit, I'm not even going to impugn him, but anyway, go ahead. Sorry. Well, well, so I think the reason why I think it's important is he, so I think this year he just signed a $30 million like it's like a hundred twenty million dollar deal with FanDuel, so it'll be paid thirty million dollars a year. So, I think just thinking about the he has like you know a similar platform, right? Like analogous to what Rogan has, if you compare it to the you know the sports media landscape. Um, and so you have a bunch of kind of increasingly activist journalists at the more old school, you know platforms that are seeing like this new person who had no career in media and now is coming in and getting a huge deal. Like I think that sort of feeds the anxiety that you just increasingly feel with these, with these journalists, um, particularly when it comes to COVID issues and then, um, you know, other issues like that. But yeah, I'll get off and I'll feed, feed, just, um, just to, yeah. to, to clarify, I mean, what do you mean feeds the anxiety? Like why would, why would Aaron Rodgers sort of, being – how would their anxiety be fed by Aaron Rodgers getting vaccinated or not? Because they're uh, – go ahead, sorry. So I think it's no, – I think no, it's like their personal I, – I think there's a sort of weird professional anxiety that exists among at least the sports media landscape. Mm-hmm. Um, especially when you have like – you know, I mean so many of the – you know, you might have like your Chicago Tribune sports section got – pilloried over years the athletic was just purchased by the new york times i think when you yeah. see someone like a former player like you know pat mcafee come in and get 30 minutes a week with rogers when rogers will like refuse to answer questions from a lot of other people right. it's sort of like you know there's a sort of jealousy at least that's what i sort of feel um mm. and i've been oh is, is, is mcafee a former player yeah, he's a former player. Oh, okay. I didn't realize that. Yeah, so that's I should part have of the reason, that up. <laughs> that's part of the reason why I think he has the access that he has is because he has relationships with these players, whereas increasingly I do feel that a lot of media members, there's just no way I could, I just like don't believe they would know these people on a personal level, which is part of, you know, I don't know why they're getting so outraged about it. Yeah, yeah. You know, you know, just on the, I guess, the broader question of anxiety within these media milieus about them potentially being supplanted by people who have gone through non-traditional journalistic routes and garnered a huge platform. I mean, that anxiety is well-founded because, number one, often the content actually is better on some of these non-traditional, quote-unquote, journalism 
platforms. Like, what, what would you rather listen to Rogers being interviewed or ha- in conversation with a fellow player who has like these very in-depth insights about the nature of the game and like the intricacies of how the NFL works? Would it be more enlightening to hear that person in dialogue with Rogers or Rogers to answer kind of trite questions from just your run-of-the-mill journalist? I mean, I would prefer the former. I mean, in a totally different subject area, you know, after Bob Saget died, not that I was a huge fan of Bob Saget, but I noticed that some of his podcasts that he was doing, you know, during COVID uh, were popping up on YouTube. So I listened to, to one where he was uh, talking to the guy who was uh, Uncle uh, Uncle Dan, uh, something in Full House. I forget the name now. Uncle Joey, I think. Um, not not a uh, what's the guy's name? I can't remember now. Dave something. Anyway, the point is, would you rather hear Bob Saget and the guy who played the uncle on Full House interviewed by like an entertainment journalist, or would you rather hear them just talk to one another? in a public forum uh, about stuff that only they have insight into how it happened on Full House or whatever throughout their comedy career. I mean, clearly, it's going to be the latter. So, yeah, I mean, the one of the core functions that journalism slash media previously provided before the ubiquitous proliferation of these kind of streaming or video services with that was that they had the infrastructure to get interviews out, right? Or to, they had to get infrastructure to put guys like Adam uh, Aaron Rodgers on camera and just have him discuss the issues of the day. Now everybody has that capacity. So why, uh, so they're kind of cutting out the middleman in uh, the form of the, the journalist. So yeah, I mean, I think they're right to be anxious about that. And not that these kind of new forms of media are always great because like if you're, if you want to be putting tough questions to some of the interview subjects, you know, having them just chatting with a friend on Zoom or something is not going to suffice, probably. Uh, but in, also, you know, in terms of informational value, it does tend to be oftentimes superior. Um, so, yeah, I mean, is there kind of professional jealousy or professional anxiety at play? I think probably. I mean, I think if the people in the sports media felt like Rogers was purposefully misleading them, or deceiving them, um, then they're probably right to almost to feel scorned uh, by him in terms of his tactics uh, in addressing this vaccination issue, and then going to a friendly, you know, podcast type outlet to to uh, air his his views. Um, so maybe that does inform why they have this pack mentality around you know heaping such exaggerated scorn on, on Rodgers um, when he, for example, loses a playoff game, which, I mean, who cares, really, unless you're super into the Packers or something, which, you know, most of them are, and it's that they have this pent-up grievance against Rodgers. Uh, could have to do with access? Possibly. <coughs> you know, I think, you know, one of the things I heard Rodgers discussing on that podcast with the God McAfee was how he felt that the unvaccinated players in the NFL, which I think is reasonable, um, were being punished by virtue of not being vaccinated when they're being made to, for example, go to these press conferences and wear a mask throughout the entire press conference, even though the vaccinated players weren't being made to do that. Uh, And in order to gain admission into this press conference room, you had to be uh, vaccinated as a member of the media or, uh, and uh, that he, he felt that it basically was a punitive measure to make 
them look bad and to kind of coerce them into getting uh, vaccinated, which probably is true. Meaning, probably it wasn't scientific in the sense that it was like of utmost necessity scientifically that Rogers wear a mask in that scenario. It was about coercing into compliance. Um, and you know that, and that all that happened in the context of a media kind of engagement. You know, I wouldn't be surprised if that has something to do with it, and like the just the overarching kind of precarity of a lot of the media industry, uh, particularly the sports media industry, kind of almost fuels this this kind of pack men- mentality where where Rogers is like in the week or something, and they have to jump on board, or else maybe they could you know, raise suspicions with future employers. But the irony of there, though, is if you were to take a more, you know, to use an overused term, heterodox or non-kind of mainstream-ish position on something like the Rogers situation, you could probably gain a huge, a larger audience. I mean, there probably, there, there probably is still an untapped demand uh, for commentary or uh, even reporting on a uh, a controversy like this Aaron Rodgers stuff uh, that journalists could potentially fill if they weren't so kind of <laughs> orthodox in their in their proclivities. Um, so I know that's my that's my thought. Um, all right, let's go to Kevin. Hello, can you hear me? Yep. Uh, well, I remember when the back on the Aaron Rodgers conversation. I remember the day that he had that interview with uh, Pat McAfee. I was on the NFL subreddit, and on Reddit there's like 20 to 25, you know, it's an aggregator, 20 to 25 uh, lines of different stories or whatever. And on that day, I think like 90% of them was just Aaron Rodgers and different quotes from that interview. Mm -hmm. And the comments were just the most insane stuff you'd ever read on the internet about, you know, how Rogers was, you know, evil and hurting people and all this crap. And I said, I left a comment on one of them. I said, wow, the Aaron, the Aaron Rogers freak out is strong today. And I was instantly banned, permanently (laughs) banned from, from the football subreddit for saying that. Wow. Yeah. And, uh, it's just crazy what liberal, like how censorious liberals have gotten over any sort of dis- dissent. And I know the moderator is probably some like 22-year-old college kid, but like even still, it's just it's just kind of crazy to me. That's hilarious. I mean, that's such an innocuous comment. That could even be construed potentially as like anti-Rogers, where you're just kind of remarking on the scope of the outrage against him or something, right? I mean, so for them to, I mean, I don't know if you're quoting it verbatim, but either way, it's a pretty unremarkable thing to say and to have that result right. in a permanent ban. That, it's that, just, that's just, yeah. yeah. That's just like, my memory of what I said. Yeah, it's just like, I mean, the question I would just pose to some of the people on Reddit is, okay, so what harm are you actually alleging that he's doing to anyone? I mean, are you are you aware of the protocols that he's subject to in terms of the daily testing that is probably more stringent than anybody anywhere on Earth must you know subject themselves to? Uh, I mean, what, what what actually is it that is that the source of your grievance? I don't think many of them have a very good answer. It would probably dissolve into a lot of cliches and a lot of kind of just pent up resentments that they would, might have a difficult time articulating with any kind of coherence. Right. And also, uh, sort of a little off topic, but I consider you the 
college COVID policy correspondent. So. <laughs> that's that's a, that's a little bit lame when you put it that way, but I'll take I it. Know, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> but, uh, no, I think you do write really good stuff on that and just how insane it is. It has gotten where, you know, you can party maskless, you can eat endorsed maskless, you can do whatever you want if you're an adult, but then you you restrict the, the least vulnerable people in the po- in the population to such a degree that they're just, they're going crazy and their parents are going crazy and I, I don't know why we're not doing a more European style. Like they talk about how great everything is in Europe, and and then when it comes to COVID policy, they ignore it and they want to have even more restrictions than they do in, in a lot of European countries. Yeah, I mean it's interesting. I was actually I've actually talked to some people at European or UK uh, universities about this very topic, and one thing that they'll always note is just the total. Um, kind of the asymmetry in just the general ethos of European universities versus American universities, where American universities have this whole kind of idea of, of collective residential life and how you know activities are planned by administrators, and we're all pitching in for the community. And you know that's very particularized to American universities, you know, like the quintessential uh, liberal arts college or something where everybody's expected to be an active participant in communal, you know, whatever. Um, and this idea that a, a European universities, like administrators will be so involved in kind of like micromanaging the social lives or the even the academic lives of students, it's almost like a foreign concept. They're, they're mystified by it. Um, you know, maybe that's changing to some extent in some European universities. I don't know, but by and large, that seems to me to be the kind of cultural divide. And with that divide existing the way it does in the in the U.S., it kind of lends itself to this extremely excessive or intrusive uh, policy impositions one after another about you know what must be done in terms of this new kind of threat to quote unquote the community. Um, so I, I think that kind of explains. A lot of it, it's, it's just the, the, the basic difference between the culture uh, at institutions of higher education in, in U.S. versus uh, Europe, where in, in Europe, a lot of this micromanagement would, would just be unthinkable. Like it wouldn't, they would never even think to do it, like to, to be so intricately involved in the kind of social lives of adults, for example. But then why do, why do we put up with it? Well, I mean, why do we put up with, I mean, it's like, why do people pay $65,000 to attend a liberal arts college where they have all their activities planned for them and they have all their, you know, you know friendships so, kind of so predetermined so, so, for them and, and so on. Have, it's like, it's just a different we just have philosophical approach. Is that it? Well, I mean, I don't think, I mean, the reason I report on it, because I don't think it should be accepted, and actually it portends badly for the rest of society that it is so widely accepted. I'm just kind of explaining why I think there is a different degree yeah. of acceptance in the U.S. versus Europe, you know. Yeah, I get it. But, like, you know, like, if it's about science and it's about protecting vulnerable, why is that not the thing at, at colleges still, you know? It's like we have to triple boost all the kids. We have to triple boost five-year-olds now. I don't know. It's just insane to me. Yeah, you know, it's just like a, it's just a cycle of. I, I think a lot of this is that a cert. It's the inability of, and that's why I keep going back to this refrain, and maybe people are sick of it. But it's the inability of a lot of these 
bureaucracies to recalibrate or to to question the first principles on which the bureaucracy was constructed um, to begin with, which is that you know this is such an extreme threat that radical changes in life are necessary to combat it. Um, you know, I, I think that you know probably as time goes on, some of that extremism will wane and is waning now. Um, but you know, it'll still flare up in different contexts. Um, but you know, it's just uh, so many of these inter- uh, bureaucratic bodies are manned by the most obnoxious kind of busybody type characters who you never want to have any control over your life whatsoever, and yet do. And so, you know, there's there's no incentive for them to do the kind of recalibration that I think would be necessary to just revisit whether it is necessary to for boost to for you know nineteen year olds to get a third shot. Um, like, who is that supposedly protecting? Like, what public health purpose is that supposedly serving? I mean, they'll have it's, it's so, it's they'll so have the justification. They'll have one percent better. Well, yeah. Well, they'll have justifications for it, but it'll all be cliched, and it'll all be just these like. Oh, protecting our community mantras that really don't hold up to any scrutiny. So, yeah. Uh, anyway, uh, thanks, Kevin. Going to go to thanks, the Mike. next person. All right. How's it going, Michael? Hey, how are you? I'm doing pretty well. So I had two questions. I, I missed the Aaron Rodgers discussion, but I was. I had a, a question. Uh, one question about just how long uh, do you do you think? we're going to see this shaming of the unvaccinated because when you look at the beginning of the pandemic, uh, a lot of people on the left were, were shaming people for going out, being in, in groups of you know, more than a few people. And then eventually after, I don't know, it's like six months probably into the pandemic, you started to see a lot of them realize that it's not sustainable to be, locked in your house for for that long and you started to see a lot uh, less pushback as far as just social gatherings go. I mean, you still see some people shame it, but it's more fringe groups. It's not not a really significant number. So as far as it goes for shaming the unvaccinated, do you think we're going to continue to see this for the entire pandemic as it rages on? Or do you think eventually uh, people in these groups are going to look at the unvaccinated as, you know what, I wish they were vaccinated, but I'm not going to put so much uh i'm I'm not going to be so angry at this group of people when the pandemic is going to rage on and then my other question is a little off topic do you what are your thoughts on a third party uh just do do you do you believe we have a better chance of reforming the republican party or the democratic party or do you think going to third party would be the best route in terms of just having a party that actually represents the people's interests yeah, I think, well, I think, for example, the NFL, they've relaxed some of the stringency of their protocols, you know, when, you know, in fairness, and it was probably to do mostly with financial self-interest when, you know, quote-unquote Omicron was happening and you had, like, half of a team potentially being out for um, into isolation for testing positive, you know, that was not going to be sustainable. So they they relax some of the the testing requirements and such. Um, I I think you'll see similar relaxations as we continue to go forward and as Omicron crests or whatever. Um, But I think in terms of the individualized resentment that a lot of people still have toward non-vaccinated individuals and that gets promoted in uh, the media and 
kind of transmuted into different kind of mechanisms for bureaucratic punishment, like in the NFL. You know, I think one way to that that could be addressed is to just get people to again delve into the first principles of what the source of their resentment supposedly is. I mean, are you actually saying? Well, I guess to put it another way, what is what is the grounds on which it would be justified to have major resentment against Aaron Rodgers? Right? Why would it be justified to be highly resentful of Aaron Rodgers for his? personal choices. Well, it would be if he actually put people at physical risk. If he actually was a public health menace. If his non not getting vaccinated resulted in you know, identifiable deaths and disease that could have been prevented had he taken a different choice. Right? But that's just not the case. I mean, that rationale doesn't exist. Right? He's uh, uh, not only has he undergone most of the, the, the some of the most stringent protocols any human on earth has, has been for COVID, he also, when he contracted COVID himself in um, what was it October or November, he, he had all been around almost exclusively vaccinated people, and we know there are mountains of evidence now that shows that it doesn't actually prevent you, meaning the vaccine, from uh, contracting or transmitting the virus. So the, the, the basic logic underlying why that resentment could only conceivably exist has fallen apart. And I think as more and more people come to realize that, even if they're not told in such blunt terms that by the media, um, their, their everyday existence kind of substantiates that it's now unfounded to harbor such resentment toward unvaccinated people. So I think that'll happen naturally. Um, I think the the question is, from a policy standpoint, um, are those is that waning of resentment going to translate into institutions no longer taking such a punitive approach toward the unvaccinated? And I use the term "the unvaccinated" in scare quotes because it's a ridiculous demographic group to just invent overnight as though there's any kind of commonality necessary between people who choose not to get. Or a, a, um, a vaccination for whatever reason. Um, so that, that's the open question. I mean, I think the, the evidence is going to be more and more staring people in the face that it's just not rational to have that kind of resentment. On the other hand, you know, when you have a major public figure who goes through a major public controversy like Aaron Rodgers, as confabulated as the controversy was, um, He's then going to get associated with being anti-vax just in the public mind, and so it's going to be used to take cheap cheap shots against him, as it was yesterday, as though his not getting vaccinated somehow meant that you know he couldn't do the game-winning drive against the Forty ers or something, which is obviously ridiculous. Um, as far as a third party, you know, I'm not one to rule out any potential political option that people want to pursue. It does seem to me that the history of third parties, at least of late in the U.S., is that they're the province of rather um, unscrupulous individuals um, and that they tend to be, you know, more kind of PR exercises than a legitimate attempt at uh, political organizing. I I just think that the the two-party system is so kind of institutionalized throughout so many sectors of government in the U.S. that it's 
that dislodging it is very uh, close to impossible. I mean, people don't, often don't know that there are actual statutes uh, at like the county and state level that allocate, you know, to, that, that that provide for the Democrats and Republicans having primacy in you know primary elections and and general elections. And so you'd have to to, to unwind all that. You'd have to go through such an arduous process and have such attention to detail that it just seems almost unfeasible. Um, that, that said, you know, I'm not going to discourage anyone necessarily from kind of organizing outside the two-party system and, you know, come what may. Um, but, but I think, you know, putting one's eggs in that basket hasn't been generally the most fruitful strategy. All right, everybody. Uh, thanks for, for tuning in, and uh, we'll do it again sometime soon. Enjoy your Sunday.